Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. What makes them industry giants? Get ready to take a peek inside and learn their secrets of success. This is Silicon Valley Insider, the show that demystifies the valley and helps to elevate your business to the next level. Now, your host for Silicon Valley Insider, Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders, it's Keith Koo, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Nelson, founder and CEO of The Hack Fund. This week's tech news has a little bit of everything. So another company you never heard of, Exactus, just lost 340 million records on Americans. And similar to Equifax, you probably won't be getting a disclosure either from this company because they actually didn't lose anything that's considered financially sensitive. But they do have 400 data elements, including how many kids you have and whether you scuba dive and whether you like dogs or cats. And the risk there is that in social engineering, this data can still be used to lure you into a email phishing scam, into some type of phone call that you might not be expecting. So just be aware of that. Also, Apple and Samsung finally settled their patent disputes, which has been going on since 2011-2012. Uh, Brian Love, an assistant professor at Santa Clara, joked that really nothing got accomplished. I think what's interesting, though, is that the Supreme Court decided that in a patent dispute, you really can narrow a dispute around certain patent design elements instead of the entire patent itself. So that will be more to come. Andreessen Horowitz announced that they're going to invest in a $300 million long-term crypto fund. And I bring this up because it seems like it's going contrarian to where a lot of folks stopped doing ICOs and stopped doing investments at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. I think it's clear that from an investment perspective, Firms like Andreessen Horowitz do think that blockchain will continue to be adopted. Speaking of blockchain, there's a company called R3, which is a consortium chain, which we talked about a few weeks ago. It had sponsors like Santander and Goldman Sachs, and also had $107 million of initial seed investment. Uh, There's a lot of controversy because a lot of these companies, including Santander and Goldman, have pulled out of the project. And it's yet to be seen whether they're going to be viable since they did burn through a lot of that cash. They're not giving official statements, but a lot, many believe that in order for them to survive, they're going to have to be acquired by a much larger company that is trying to develop blockchain. Google announced that they have a human-sounding duplex AI, and it's just a little bit interesting that it sounds like a real human. And I'll talk more about that in a future show, but that leads into a story on Lil McQuayla, which is a Brazilian-American 19-year-old with 1 million Instagram followers who happens to be a digital personality. And we would have never known except another digital personality called her out on Instagram about a few months ago when it was called the Lil McQuayla hack. And... There's a lot more to the story, which we'll get into in a future show, but it just goes to show that uh, identity and reputation management are becoming very important even for digital personalities. And that's why people are looking at technologies like blockchain to solve for that. And that's the news of the week. So welcome back. Today I'm joined by 
Jonathan Nelson, who's the founder and CEO of the Hack Fund. Jonathan has a really interesting background. Uh, he has previously raised a $600 million portfolio market cap in five years. And he's actually also a member of the SEC's Advisory Committee for Capital Formation for Small and Emerging Business. He's also a board member of Wilson Center for Public Policy, Latin America. So, Jonathan, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jonathan, uh, I know you speak a lot. I know you're everywhere. But I think what you're doing with the Hack Fund is super interesting. So, before we get into that, though, why don't we talk a little bit more about how you got started? <laughs> it's a strange story. How far back do you want to go? As far back as you want. You can go back to the... <laughs> What is it, the, the fields of Honduras? So I was the only white child at the end of six hours of dirt road in rural Honduras growing up. Um, we then moved to this little known country called Costa Rica, and I lived there for 10 years. Um, I thought it was normal to ride sea turtles because the park rangers always wanted to take a photo, you know, Polaroid picture with a little you know, blonde kid. Um, but I grew up in this currency crisis in Costa Rica. The exchange rate went from 8 to 1 to 160 to 1. And so I just grew up kind of thinking financial, finance, macroeconomics. Um, I did this weird 20-year stint um, as a nurse. Um, I was an ER trauma nurse for about 20 years. Um, I wanted to major in computer science back in 1990. My dad was pretty convinced that computers were video game machines. <laughs> and so he said, you know, son, if you're going to go back overseas and do missionary work like, like your old man, you know what? It was really helpful that your mom was a nurse. So I did nursing and then dropped out of Bible school and then um, found myself eventually going back to school 15 years later for software engineering and moving to Silicon Valley. And... Um, I was going to seek, you know, success, fame, and fortune. How do you build a company, flip it to Google for $10 million, and then retire back to Costa Rica and figure out how to get shoes on little kids? Um, and so I was this weird period where I moved here 10 years ago. Um, I was working at El Camino Hospital. At one point, I managed 700 people there. Um, and then four nights a week, I would code. And then one night a month, I would get together um, at a pub, at a bar with a bunch of my nerd friends to talk about building startups. And that event was called Hackers and Founders. Um, 2009, uh, 2010, during the recession, uh, the Great Recession, um, these Hackers and Founders events started going viral. We started seeing thousands of entrepreneurs from around the globe come to Silicon Valley, say, hey, how do I raise $5 million? Um, and that was really the root of all of those problems that entrepreneurs were facing around the globe. They kept on asking me, Jonathan, how do you raise money? How do you raise money? So we turned that into a business the last five years where we help companies from abroad land here. Um, we help um, them raise capital, do business development, immigration, housing. Um, I have a boutique physician on call 24-7. Um, in case one of my CEOs gets sick and they don't have U.S. health insurance. That's great. Rather than have them end up in an emergency room and pay $50,000 and struggle to pay those bills, um, they go talk to Dr. Mate and, you know, he sees them same day for $100. Um, so, and those 55 companies that we've worked with have grown to become worth about $600 bucks. They've raised $100 million. We've had eight acquisitions from our portfolio in the last five years. Um, we've primarily been services for equity the last five years. And so we've been fairly agnostic as to how our companies get capital, whether it be venture capital, whether it be angel investing. Um, 
So crowdfunding is an interesting option for us. We submitted a bunch of comments to the SEC on crowdfunding, and that's what got me on an advisory committee in the SEC on capital formation because not a whole lot of people have had the background of talking with thousands of entrepreneurs about their capital problems. Entrepreneurs? Entrepreneurs. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really great way you got started. I mean, I think everyone's got a story. Mm -hmm. And you coming out of a a missionary family, finding your way... um, Although, you know, my great-grandparents are missionaries as well. Mm-hmm. And my father also thought that computers were just video games. So it's, <laughs> it's funny how, uh, you know, believers think that. But what you're doing, what's really interesting is, although our show is called Silicon Valley Insider, we've mm-hmm. never made it about just Silicon Valley. Yep. We, we've made it really about reach. Uh, we have 61 countries listening to us. Wow. And a lot of them are the countries that you are getting companies out of. Yep. And I think what you're bringing is really unique and special because a lot of times people thought that Silicon Valley is literally out of reach and you're actually bringing it to them. Yes. And we're, we've been creating bridges from Silicon Valley to around the globe. So hackers and founders events, I mentioned they went viral. They've been held in 130 cities around the globe. We've had 300,000 entrepreneurs attend our events over the last 10 years. And what do you do with that? And you end up in the middle of this global explosion of technology innovation. You know, I went to go visit my brother in Guadalajara six years ago, and we go to a Starbucks, and everybody in the Starbucks had a little $300 netbook. And I'm like, this is not the Latin America that I grew up in. And these people had netbooks, and a lot of them were coding, and I'm like, this is strange. I had never thought of Guadalajara as an engineering hub. Guadalajara has more engineers than all of Ireland. That that sounds surprising, but it really isn't. You know, I mean, Guadalajara, the city itself, is probably about five, six million people. Um, and so we've opened offices there to actually help startups scale across the Spanish-speaking world as well. But their capital problems um, are no one's going to acquire them. So, Jonathan, this is a great start, and I know we're going to have a lot to talk about the rest of the show. So let's save that for the next segment. You're listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo, joined by the CEO and founder of the Hack Fund, Jonathan Nelson. Any questions or comments, email us at info at svi.biz. We'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. Joined with the founder and CEO of the Hack Fund, Jonathan Nelson. So, Jonathan, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, the question of the week is very timely, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. The SEC, which is William Hinman, had just stated, and again, they never say anything officially, but it's almost official, that the SEC has a stance that Bitcoin and Ethereum in themselves are not securities, mm-hmm. but that some ICOs may be. Mm-hmm. You were on one of the SEC advisory committees. Mm-hmm. What is your personal take on this comment? So it, it, it's, it's, it was a very interesting kind of expansion. So what defi- when I came into this business, I thought that the security meant that it was part of a company. You know, it's a share in a company. That's what a security is. Um, but it's not. A loan can be a security, uh, a mortgage, a derivative, a future, an option, and stock, and now Tokens are primarily securities. Um, What defines a security is, are people going to buy this to profit off of what you do? 
if I issue a token and people might buy it because they're going to profit off of what I do, that means that is a security. It's the anticipation of profit on someone else's work. Um, what was really interesting was they said, yes, people might buy Ethereum to profit, but it's not off of what one person or a centralized group does. It's profit off of the work of this Ethereum network, right? which was really, I thought, very kind of forward thinking and shockingly nuanced. Um, but uh, the vast majority of tokens that are being issued and ICOs that are being issued right now are in fact securities. Yes. Um, and so that was really interesting. There was also a comment in that speech that said, you know, there are things that might be securities when they're launched that eventually no longer become securities. Yeah. I thought that was interesting as well. Uh, my take is exactly as you're saying. I think the key, and you just hit that, Ethereum and Bitcoin are in essence decentralized networks. Mm -hmm. And so is EOS, which just launched. So mm -hmm. it, it's... You know, we've said many times on the show, and we also are not giving any type of financial advice. We've said many times on the show that this is a new space for everybody, mm -hmm. the digital currency world, and that the regulators are attempting to keep up with the rate of change in technology. Yep. So thanks for your, your comments. I think that, again, new field, new regulations and laws will have to be enacted, and uh, it'll be an interesting space to watch. So Jonathan, in our first segment, you were talking about your background, talking yep. about um, your family being in the mission field in Honduras and how you moved to Costa Rica, mm -hmm. and how in Guadalajara, you're talking about netbooks and they're $300 and there's more coders in Guadalajara than all of Ireland. Mm -hmm. So we had Greg Oshuri on a few months ago who is uh, currently the CEO of Akash, a decentralized um, network or another blockchain company, mm -hmm. but was actually the founder of AngelHack and that was his personal story. He talked about where he came in India. You know, he basically got an early computer and just started banging away on it and had the community help support him and learn how to code. Yep. And that story is happening all over the world. Um, we have a group of hackers and founders getting together on a regular basis in Benin. Um, we asked them how they learned engineering, and they said YouTube. <laughs> Um, there's another group in Bangladesh, you know, several hundred people strong that are getting together building technology companies. Um, but um, one of the things that we did at the SEC was we kind of did this root cause analysis on why so much capital gets invested in Silicon Valley and why so little capital gets invested, let's say, in Fargo or Peoria or, um, you know, Indianapolis. And when it comes down to it, how, how our capital structures are arranged in the United States are, if I'm going to invest in your company, I buy stock from you. The only way that I as an investor in that company make money is if you sell your all of your stock to a Google when it gets acquired, or if you sell part of your stock on a public stock market. So mergers and acquisitions and IPOs are really the only two ways that investors make money investing in startups and really small businesses. Mm -hmm. And so you have this weird little thing that happened 70 years ago called Silicon Valley. 
And since then, there has been $4 trillion in market capitalization of companies in Silicon Valley. That's 15% of all of the securities and equities in the United States are located in this tiny little neighborhood. And 85% of all the mergers and acquisitions in the world in the technology space happen here. So you have this hyper concentration of mergers and acquisitions. And here is where people make money buying stock in small, rapidly growing startups. Why? Because here is where those companies get sold. And here is a clear path to IPO, where if you're in Guadalajara and you have one of our portfolio companies down there and they talk with an angel investor or a wealthy individual and they say, hey, would you like to invest in my company? And the wealthy individual says, and how do I make money? And they're like, you know, well, Google's going to acquire me. And the answer is, el Google? No. <laughs> and then you're like, well, no, well, I IPO on the NASDAQ. And they're like, no. And so um, I've become convinced, and this is kind of why we developed um, innovating the way we are with the Hack Fund. Um, we are trying to solve this problem. This problem is known as the liquidity problem. If I invest in a company, my money is frozen inside of that company until I can sell the stock again, until that capital starts to flow again. Um, and so we're using the concept of blockchain stock certificates. Okay. Um, so our fund has blockchain stock certificates that can be bought and sold on online exchanges. Um, and this makes it closer to like a Berkshire Hathaway model. It's very much like a Berkshire Hathaway model. It's much more of an investment company um, than it is necessarily a fund because we have shares in our investment company and people can buy the shares. Um, unless you're a non-accredited investor in the United States, you cannot, and we are not marketing this in the United States. We have a very small number of slots to U.S. accredited investors, and this is not an offer for a security in any way, shape, or form right now on the radio. I have to be very explicit <laughs> thank, with thank that. Thank you. I was about to make the same disclaimer, so uh, thank <laughs> you very much. Because I served on SEC Advisory Committee. I can't really mess this stuff up. Um, and so, but uh, our stock will essentially be tradable on crypto exchanges. Um, and this concept of blockchain stock certificates, of tokenizing stock, I think is really transformative. Because we can now, I no longer have to ask a founder, what's your exit strategy? Why? Because the people who own my stock, what they need me to do as a fund manager is they need me to grow the value of my stock by growing the value of my portfolio. Um, a traditional venture capitalist their job is to invest in companies that they think they can flip to Google or Facebook or Cisco within 10 years yes, or flip to an IPO within 10 years. I don't have to flip companies for my investors to make money because my investors can buy, sell, and trade my stock on online exchanges whenever. Um, and I think that we're going to blow, um, that this kind of blows the model open, especially this allows me to invest pretty much anywhere in the world. What I ask our portfolio companies is, how are you going to grow? And how are we going to be able to measure and prove that growth to these third parties that we've actually set up to be able to audit and to monitor our growth? Um, and so it's, it's the advent of blockchain that's really allowing us to do this. Um, and this is an invention that's really, you know, it's ICOs or an Ethereum smart contracts, EOS smart contracts, or you know, the last twenty-four months or so, this stuff has started exploding. Um, that's really that's really exciting for me. Yeah, you know, I don't know if we'll be able to talk about it too much before our next segment because we got like a couple minutes left. But I want to really dive into how does blockchain not just disrupt what we've been talking a lot about supply chain and mm. financial services, but we're really talking about 
entire models. So in fact, let's let's hang on to that because okay. this is a very deep conversation. Yep. Um, you're listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. I'm joined by the founder and CEO of the Hack Fund, Jonathan Nelson, who's done a lot of things in his life, including missional work before becoming a venture capitalist and now a crypto venture capitalist, for lack of a better term. If you have any questions or comments, you should email us at info at svi.biz, and we'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. And I'm joined today by the founder and CEO of the Hack Fund, Jonathan Nelson. Uh, we've had a very interesting conversation so far about Jonathan's new project, the Hack Fund, and how it's disrupting venture capital. This week's tip of the week is really a governance risk and compliance tip. There was a Texas medical firm, MD Anderson Cancer Center, that just got fined $4.3 million by the Department of Health and Human Services. And the reason why they got fined is for what's considered an unencrypted device that stored PHI or personal health information. And I wanted to bring this up because I think that in the past, especially prior to 2017, we hear a lot about data breaches, and data breaches isn't just theft of data, it's actually also sloppy handling of data. And coming from large banks and large technology companies, we know that this is becoming more and more serious. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had so much news around Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. So here's a situation where we talk about it in terms of working with your auditors and compliance folks. Oftentimes, people have findings, or called audit findings, and they ignore them. And when they get ignored... It's kind of like a scoff law. They think, oh, it's no big deal, almost like uh, an unpaid parking ticket. Well, the government, because of all of the privacy theft, breaches, sloppy handling, we are seeing more and more situations like Anderson Cancer Center. This was only the second time in history that the Department of Health and Human Services have taken action, and HIPAA is about 20-something years old. So my recommendation, the tip is be on top of things that you need to be in compliance of, especially when it comes to data handling and data privacy. Don't take it for granted and don't think that because you got off easy previously or that it never was an issue before, that it won't become an issue today, especially if you're in any regulated industry. Um, It goes without saying that if you're in financials or banks, but think about healthcare, automotive, and other types of industries that deal with personal information. This is something not to be taken lightly. And in fact, the Department of Health and Human Services actually said that they will be going after more and more enforcement actions. If you need help with a risk assessment or understanding what is involved, please email us at info at svi.biz. So Jonathan, in our last segment, we were just talking about how you're disrupting venture capital. Why don't we go through that whole model? Absolutely. Um, So essentially, um, venture capital is centralized. Um, we talked about this a little bit in the last segment, but you know the business model of a traditional venture capitalist is how do I invest in companies that I can flip to Google so that my investors and my fund can finally make money. 
Um, the hack fund model is actually very different. It's much more like a Berkshire Hathaway. It's an investment company. Um, we have shares in this investment company, and people can essentially buy our shares on online crypto exchanges. We're in pre-sales right now. Um, but people will be able to buy our stock on crypto exchanges, um, and then they will be able to sell it. And my job as a fund manager of that type of fund is to invest in companies that measurably and provably grow over time. Like, how do you do that? Well, one of the easiest ways is to measure revenue growth. I know it's kind of heretical in Silicon Valley to talk about revenue um, <laughs> and revenue growth and investing in old school profitable com companies. Um, but I'm kind of, you know, call me vintage that way. Um, I just think that making money is kind of at the core of a company. And so how do we do this? Well, we actually have a partnership with Carta. It used to be called eShares. Um, so they have a rules-based valuation engine. So they will be able to value, tell me what the value of my portfolio is, and that's going to cost me 250 bucks per company per year. They can do that on a quarterly basis. They make it really easy to hand that off to an auditor, so that will be audited um, So you know, by a public auditor. And then we can actually report that. We're not doing this in the United States, so we would not report this to the SEC. Sure. Eventually, I do want to make this in the SEC. In the United States, we're going to require an act of Congress, however. Um, but I am going to report this to a blockchain. And then, the you know, on a quarterly basis, and then people will essentially say, hey, I think those companies still have room to grow. Um, I'm interested in buying more of the stock of this fund. Or um, I don't think that they have room to grow, or I think I'm bearish on the entire market and I can sell my stock. So the idea is, rather than having an investor in a venture fund, traditional venture fund, their money gets locked up for like 10 years plus. They don't know if they made a good investment for a decade. Right. Um, my investors will be able to actually invest. And you know, if you need to buy a house or something, you can sell your stock, um, which I think is actually really transformative. Um, the fact that we're doing this on the blockchain, um, I looked at actually doing this on the NASDAQ, on the public markets in the United States. It was going to cost me $5 million just to get off the ground and about $3 million a year in maintenance. So I, I literally had a phone call with a lawyer in Manhattan, and the phone call went like this. Oh, hello, Jonathan. Sorry, it's very loud. I'm on my, I'm the deck of my yacht in the Manhattan Harbor, so if I can't hear you, you'll have to repeat yourself. Oh, 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 Caesar, Caesar, can you give me some more Chablis, please? And don't spill that. That's white leather. You know how it stained the last time. Sorry, Jonathan, you were saying, oh, no, 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 no. It doesn't make any sense to build a publicly traded fund for less than, you know, a billion dollars under management, because frankly, you can't afford my legal fees. <laughs> And, and that was the conversation. And I'm like, well, there's your problem. Um, and being a hacker and a founder, um, I just decided there's got to be a better way to do this and to decrease costs. Um, and you talk about what you do at the events and people started saying blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. And so after 18 months of legal work, um, talking with 12 different law firms in eight different legal jurisdictions. Um, we finally found that the Cayman Islands, we are essentially a publicly traded closed-end fund. Um, Cayman Islands has a carve-out for publicly traded closed-end funds. Um, they are not to be regulated, but they exist, and buyer beware. Um, they have another interesting set of laws, which was actually very prescient. 15 years ago, they said, we're not going to make a distinction between a paper certificate um, or a digital certificate, uh, a paper document or a digital document. Um, so we can actually create digital stock certificates by issuing tokens. And in our legal docs, our shares are represented by these digital tokens. 
And so we essentially have a vehicle to build a publicly traded fund, but instead of listing on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, we are just listed on crypto exchanges. That, that's really cool to hear about. How did the Caymans know a decade ago to d- delineate between a paper and a digital certificate? I don't know. I mean, I was actually shocked um, when I heard about it. Um, we talked with this law firm called Meeples and Calder. They actually do about 40% of the fund work in, in the Cayman Islands. And I, we've talked to Gibraltar, we've talked to Malta, we've talked to Luxembourg, we've talked to Switzerland, um, Singapore, um, a bunch of different legal jurisdictions to say, hey, I, I'm not interested in, I'm on, not inter- I'm doing, I'm very interested in protecting my investors and doing the right thing. I just want to be able to build the financial product that I want to build that I think will help transform markets. Um, and they said, oh, you know what? Cayman's actually quite crypto friendly. We have this law in the books that says, you know, digital tokens are, we just, we cannot make a distinction between a digital document and a paper document. That's a 15 year old law. And I'm like, wow. Um, where Cayman Islands is very, very uptight is in money laundering, anti-money laundering protections. Um, so we have to have a photo ID. Yes. Um, and that photo, that person, everyone who invests has to get checked against a terrorist watch list, as well as a money laundering watch list. Which is a good thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I have no problem with that. Um, and so we're strict in compliance with that. But that actually, it's allowed me the freedom to actually innovate in financial services. Um, so quick question, because yeah. we're talking a lot about innovation. Are you able to disrupt the management fee process as well? So um, that's kind of an inside baseball thing I don't normally talk to talk about, but yes, absolutely. Um, so a traditional venture fund um, charges a 2% management fee usually a year, which makes sense. Everybody's got to live. 2% is you know negligible, except when you think that these funds live for 10 years. Yeah. So it's 20% of the investor's money gets taken off the table and is just sucked into management fees. Um, that blew my mind when I first came to it, and I started asking people, "Well, why wouldn't you? Why would you create a venture fund with such you know, 20% taken off the table? Like, this is why venture capital as an asset class only does 5% per year. It's kind of a dirty little secret in the industry. Um, venture capital is a terrible asset class, um, it, you know, for many investors. It's only a very, very small percentage of investors that actually make more than 10% a year. Um, we've been doing 30." Uh, for five years, but a lot of that has been structural. Um, so if you actually look when angels invest in technology companies, they tend to do about 25% per year if they build a portfolio of 20, 20 companies. So entrepreneurs are a great asset class. And if you look at the difference between when angels invest and when venture capital invests, there's about a 20% difference there. So when I was learning about this industry, I'm like, well, it's the 20% management fee. That's the problem. So how do we do that? So what we're doing with our management fee structure is everything that we use for operations in our fund, we have to repay at 5% interest. So a full 100% of our investors' money is going to get put to work compounding interest. Okay. And it sounds friendly. It's actually because I will also receive the benefit of that compound interest over 10 years of a $100 million fund. Um, if I do half of what I've been doing performance-wise the last five years, um, that will mean an extra $100 million in my pocket just because 100% of that money is compounding as opposed to 80%. Wow. So financial performance for my investors as well as myself will be better just from a fee structure. Yeah, it's a meritocracy, right? Yeah. So while I have you, I wanted to ask you because 
this is very new in the governed blockchain space. So mm. EOS just launched. I know we talked about it be you know, um, off microphone. Yep. EOS is a governed blockchain. Mm-hmm. So Bitcoin generation one, Ethereum generation two, yep. EOS generation three. The analogy is that the block producer, the 21 official and the 50 standbys, they in essence have to contribute back a certain percentage, let's call it 10% yep. of the generated tokens yep. into you know, a charitable cause, or in essence, they become a, a de facto crypto VC. Mm-hmm. How does that model compare to what you're doing? So we have actually set aside um, 2% of our tokens. So we're issuing a limited number of tokens at first. It's going to be $100 million worth. Um, and when we finally do full ICO, it's going to be a buck a piece. Um, and 2% of that is actually set aside for nonprofits and community um, organizations specifically focusing on entrepreneurship stuff. Um, so things like globaleir.org, which is a nonprofit that we spun off to actually help founder immigration for founders coming to the United States. Um, there's another nonprofit that we actually support out of Peru that teaches young women from really bad neighborhoods how to code and helps them get from $200 a month earning potential to $2,000 a month earning potential within a year. Um, so nonprofits like that are actually where um, the 2% of our fund is actually going to go to. Great. And then since we're talking all about the Hack Fund, what's the best way to reach you and the team? So the best way to reach us is um, our website is hackfund.com. Um, if you actually want to talk with us, uh, Telegram, our Telegram channel is probably the best, t.me slash hackfund. Um, and you can message anyone on the team and we can reach out to you. We also have a chat um, widget on our website and people usually get back. We're usually pretty responsive on that. Well, great. So again, you're listening to Keith Koo, Silicon Valley Insider, joined by special guest, founder and CEO of the Hack Fund, Jonathan Nelson. For any questions or comments, email us at info at svi.biz. I'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. Again, I'm joined by founder and CEO of the Hack Fund, Jonathan Nelson. And Jonathan had a really inspirational story about how he got started in very humble beginnings as a missionary in the Honduras. And before we get back in with Jonathan, I did want to remind everyone that IBM has a call for code. It started on June 18th and ends on August 31st. And back to service, IBM has invested $30 million into companies that will be developing software for disaster relief or disaster-related projects. So you think about earthquakes, tsunamis, floods, all of that IBM is looking for solutions for. So if you're a team of one to five people, please email us at info and we can get you connected with the IBM team that's leading this effort. And again, that's IBM Call for Code. The deadline is August 31st, and the winner will be announced on October 31st with a charity event to follow. So, Jonathan, thanks again for being here. Yeah, no, my pleasure. It's been great. So, you know, we talked about how the Hack Fund is really disrupting the VC model mm-hmm. completely, and you are so well-versed based on also your expertise being part of the SEC Advisory Committee. 
What are some of the things that we can go back to in terms of what inspired you to create this? Uh, you know, I mean, I never, ever really, I never wanted to be a VC. Actually, when I was young, the, the, my worst case scenario in life was getting stuck in the United States and being a business person. Um, and, you know, here I am. Um, the reason that I ended up creating this fund and structuring it this way is because I've had conversations with thousands of entrepreneurs and they're, they just don't get a chance to play the Silicon Valley game. Um, you know, it's really hard to come in from the outside, from overseas to land, um, to set up shop, to get connected with the venture community, to get connected with the angel investors when you're an unknown. Um, and, and that's a challenge. And for me, it's been, how do I help my friends build their companies? Um, you know, venture funded startups in Silicon Valley, less than 4% are women, have women founders, less than 1% have African-American or Hispanic founders. Um, and I don't think that's a malicious um, institutional prejudice. I think it, I know why it happens. It's just, it's a byproduct of, hey, you went to Stanford and hey, we went to Harvard and you invest in people like you that you know of. Um, we, have an app, we have an application process when people want to actually get funded by us. We remove their names, genders, ages, schools that they come from. So it's basically just based on what you do. Um, and 60% of our companies have a woman, an Hispanic, or an African-American founder. That's awesome. Um, and it's stuff like that. I mean, ultimately, my dream when I came to Silicon Valley, when I went back to school for software engineering, was, you know what? I wanted to learn how to build a company, flip it to Google for 5 or $10 million, and then retire back to Central America. And I don't know, figure out how to get shoes on little kids. You know, you grew up playing soccer with kids without shoes 45 years later. I'm still talking about that. It still kind of bugs me. Um, and if you actually think about it, how do you get shoes on hundreds of millions of children around the world? And I'm using shoes for metaphor for sure. poverty. Um, you know, moms and dads need better jobs. We need to do find better jobs than picking bananas and growing bananas. Um, how do we get them better jobs? Well, we need better companies. How do we get better companies? Well, those companies are going to need capital. Um, how do we actually get capital to countries like Honduras or Guatemala um, when you don't have a merger and acquisition, when you don't have an IPO culture? You have to bring your liquidity with you, which is why we built the Hack Fund. Um, what keeps me working 100 hours a week isn't making a ton of money. You know, I'm not a person that's motivated by money. I'm motivated by solving very hard problems. Um, I know that I have to make a lot of money for my investors. I know I'm going to do very, very well. But what if we could actually change how we capitalize companies around the world? And what if through that we could actually put shoes on hundreds of millions of children's? You know, I grew up in Latin America. The Spanish-speaking world is 10% of the world's economy. Right. Um, that 10% of the world's economy receives $500 million a year in angel, venture, and private equity combined. Uber's last investment round was $2 billion. Right. So one quarter of Uber's last investment round is what goes into the continent of Latin America. A $100 million fund increases investment into Latin America by 10 to 15% per year. That's a tiny, tiny venture fund in Silicon Valley. But you, that will move entire economies. 
create thousands of new jobs, which means tens of thousands of families will be deeply affected by that, which means that over the course of 10 years, we can conceivably put shoes on millions of children. Why? Because we're finally able to start investing in emerging markets um, and giving these people um, the same chance that somebody else in Silicon Valley has. Um, in my mind, that's what's worth, what's worth working 100 hours a week for, and that's what keeps me going. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And you know, we talked a lot about Latin America, where you came from. Are there other emerging markets that you're targeting? Oh, absolutely. Um, we have opened offices in China um, as of a few weeks ago. We're in the middle of opening offices in the Middle East. Dubai is actually pretty interesting. Um, uh, you know, Latin America, Brazil is a huge market. Africa is actually really interesting. There's a lot of kind of homegrown technology solutions solving local problems that are really compelling. Um, but these companies just can't get the capital to get off the ground. Um, so all of those markets, um, I think, are just green fields. And, you know, we're going to be able to invest in these companies and help them grow. And we'll be one of the few funds out there that can do that. So, so Jonathan, it's I'm sorry to say we're out of time. It's been a fantastic experience having you on the show today. We'll definitely have to have you back. My pleasure. So again, it's Keith Koo, Silicon Valley Insider, joined by the CEO and founder of The Hack Fund, Jonathan Nelson. That's thehackfund.com. Any other information, you can email us at info at svn.biz, and we will be back next week. Thanks. You've been listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. For questions or comments on today's program or to schedule a complimentary consultation with Keith about your business, call 1-888-828-SVIN. That's 1-888-828-7846, 888-828-SVIN.